Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's good to see y'all. It is especially around Christmas time, and I'm not sure why it is that I get like a bug in my bonnet. Is that something people say? I just thought of that. It makes sense. If I had a bonnet and there was a bug in it, it'd be trouble. Uh, about Latin, and I'm not sure why that is. And I really, I really appreciate you guys. It's such a loving uh, congregation to let me throw up Latin phrases, and I don't know why it is. Um, maybe I just think it makes me sound smart or something. But uh, this morning, I, I have one simple point. It's not, it's not a lot. Um, uh, I know that everybody's getting ready. It's been a busy week, and it's going to be a busy week. Um, and so it's a very simple point today, and it is, again, another Latin phrase, sole deo gloria, which means literally uh, to God be the glory or glory to God alone. And this was a rallying cry for the church during the Reformation period that everything that was happening, everything that was driving people to come to Jesus, everything that we should be about, everything and everything and everything and everything is about the glory that is due to God and to God alone. My text this morning um, is from Ezekiel chapter 36. If you will uh, turn in your Bibles, uh, follow along as I read. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. But I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully obey my rules, and you shall dwell in the land that I I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you, and I will make the fruit of the tree, the increase of the field abundant, that you will never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations, and then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities. And your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let this be known to you and be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This has been on very much like Matt. um, God must be uh, speaking to people this week because this has been just bothering me. This whole text has been bothering me for weeks and weeks, almost three weeks now. And I don't know what to do with it, so I figured I should preach on it. (laughs) That wasn't supposed to be funny, but... (laughs) (laughs) We have seen over the past three weeks... Um, as we've been moving through the, the month of, uh, of Advent, through the months of Advent, uh, we have seen how 
the prophecy of God coming, answering the question, why did God become man? The prophecy of God coming is wrapped up in, in a king, and the king coming, and, and he's coming to, to conquer his enemies, we saw in Psalm 2. And he's coming to, to reign over the nations, we saw in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11. And he is coming to command his people, to lead them in his ways, as we saw in Deuteronomy 19. We see it in Isaiah 2, we see it in Jeremiah 23, we see it all over the prophets. And this troubling passage, though, to me, stands out. It stands out because of what it says in verses 22 and what it, says is, what it says in verse 32. And it is this. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And again in verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. It's, 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 it's such an interesting text to me because you have this sort of opening up. Let me, let me tell you what I'm about to do. And then let me tell you all about these things that I'm going to do. And I'm going to lavish all of this grace upon you. But, but I want you to know as it starts out, this is not about you. And I want you to know as I wrap it all up, guess what? It's still not about you because it is about the glory of of God. And that is my first point. Well, it was my first point. There it is. Sole Deo Gloria. It is not about you. And as we read this text, all these wonderful things in, ch- in chapter 36, verses 23 through 31, you see all these beautiful, wonderful things that God is lavishing upon the people. It's almost as if I hear Jesus whispering to us uh, that I came to give you life and life to the full, life abundantly. I want to pour out life into you. Jesus says this, and, and, and you know, it, it reminds me in the center of this, this text in Ezekiel of all of the verses that we love so much, the verses that, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and, and Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life, and and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And we love these texts because they kind of pat us on the back, don't they? And we love these words that speak grace to us and speak about God's giving us things. And, and I think that we have mislaid what this is all about. I was reading in the Christian Standard. God help us if that's a standard. Um, I was reading in the Christian Standard a few weeks ago. Um, about one of our up-and-coming, very hip and cool megachurches, and that's great. I have no beef with any of that stuff. Do they still say the beef? No, the kids don't say that anymore. That's probably very dated. Kristen laughed hard, so I know. This is not thing, thing that people say. That I have no issue with that. That's great. But, but what this church was being lauded for doing is for every Sunday presenting the gospel. And so instead of focusing on a sermon or focusing on the music, or fo- they're focused on the gospel. And the gospel is this. In fact, it's so neatly packaged. I read it one time and basically had it down. Uh, that God is love and the world has got evil in it. And so Jesus came to rescue us so that we could have the choice to follow him. And then we could have uh, restoration or salvation. And this is the gospel, they say. I, in fact, it, it's, it's such a neat package, I didn't want to touch it, but immediately I began thinking about math because I knew Carl would be here this morning. And so I thought in the equation, and we, we could do it much simpler and cleaner. We could say Jesus plus me minus sin equals salvation. And that's so nice, isn't it? I mean, you could, does that work? Well, thank you. That's a math, math teacher stamp of approval. 
It's such a neat little package. Like we just sort of, man, that's sellable, isn't it? It's sellable. We talk like that, and I think we, we like that. It's, it's almost kind of sappy nice, and yet there's a problem. The Bible is a cold shower on that, because what misses in that telling of the story? Where's God? Where's the glory that's due to God and to God alone? Where is the church? Where is the conquest? Where is the ruling? Where is the kingdom? Where is judgment? Where are all of these other things that we read within the scriptures? In fact, nothing about what I just told you sounds like what we read in the prophets because when we ask the question, what is God coming here to do? And we read prophecy after prophecy. He is coming to be king so that he can rule over the kingdoms of the world, so so that he can set all things right. It is big, it is cosmic, and it is always, always, always about the glory that is due God and the Son of God through the Holy Spirit. And yet all of that is missed So often, when we tell the story of the nativity, we tell the story of the gospel. I I see these blog posts, and they drive me nuts. It's sort of that moment where you're, like, typing on Facebook, you're about to, like, and then you delete it all because you know it's just going to be a mess. These blog posts that say, like, nine reasons, and this is the one I saw recently, nine reasons why, uh, nine reasons why sinners came to Jesus but don't come to church. Well, you all showed up today, so we've got sinners in church. Plenty of sinners in church. I, that's probably a disputable fact, but it was the usual tripe. It's, you know, we're hypocrites, and we condemn sin, but we're sinners, really, and, and we're too focused on the Bible, all kinds of things like that. And, and, I, and I was just sitting there thinking, in all of these things, all of this complaint, all this bellyaching that we do, all this concern we have about this shrinking of the church, or maybe not enough people coming to salvation, all of that, in all of that, I never hear anyone asking the question, is the problem this, that we have lost focus of the one thing that God has placed in us and that God has placed at the very center of the universe, and that is this, his own glory. Maybe the question we should be asking, rather than our programs or our music or our preacher or our attitude or whatever it is that we're, we're, we're bent out of shape about, maybe the question we should be asking, and maybe even in our own lives, when you're asking the question, am I a good Christian? Am I a faithful Christian? Maybe the center question is this, is God receiving glory and absolutely everything that is said and done? Because that seems to be the obsession of Scripture. That seems to be the obsession of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. The voice came from heaven. I have, glorify, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And again we read in John 17, 1, Jesus, when he had spoken up these words, and this is that high priestly prayer where Jesus praying for his disciples. He's about to die. He's laying down his life, and he's giving this last prayer, and this is his prayer. He says, Father, the hour comes. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. And this, makes a, this, is, very, this is very mind-bending if you think Trinitarianly because we believe in one God in three persons, as the old song says, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Son says, glorify me, Father. God says, glorify me. And God says back, I will glorify you, right? God glorifies himself to glorify himself because it is always, 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 always about the glory that is due God. It is all about God. It is all about his glory. And we read in um, 
Exodus chapter 33, 18. Moses, what does he ask to see? He doesn't ask to see, doesn't ask to see his presence. He doesn't ask to see his face. He says, show me your glory. And when he sees that little bit of his glory, it transforms Moses. It transforms him so that his face shines like the sun. Like the glory is transferable. And once you see it, it shakes you. It changes you. It makes you different. And we read in Exodus chapter 24, 17, that the appearance of the glory of the Lord, where it came down upon Mount Sinai, and it, and it wrapped itself around this mountain, and there was great peals of lightning and thunder. That, so the, the whole mountain, if you can imagine a mountain, if you've ever been on a mountain, the whole thing just shaking. And it says that the appearance of the glory of God was like fire. It was, it was raging and burning and bright and swirling all around. When the glory of God came upon the temple, we read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, the glory comes down and it says the glory of God filled the temple, that the glory of God is so deep and so powerful and so penetrating. It's like a substance that fills in the cracks that the whole tabernacle was burning and blazing with the glory of God of God, the whole of the universe. In Psalm 19, 1, we read that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, yesterday morning, Emery got us up, got me up, uh, at like 6.30, and she wanted to watch a uh, nature documentary about birds. And I was like, I was like sleep drunk, you know, like where it's kind of like things are interesting because you're so tired that, you know, wouldn't normally be interesting. I'm watching this, uh, watching this thing about birds. I'm like, that's fascinating. I had no idea the kind of biodiversity of birds. And they looked ridiculous and they looked cool and they could do all these things. I had no idea. And they, they shined uh, like ultraviolet light on these birds so that they would glow because when birds see each other, they see each other in like the, the color like that pops out because it's a ultraviolet spectrum. And I thought, my goodness, the world is amazing. I mean, it is, it is, it is burning, it is blazing, it is a, a, it's literally a fire with the glory of God. It declares the glory of God. And so in Psalm 96, those who God has given voice, because he's given the birds the song, but he's given you words. And so it says this, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. We have as a church been resistant to the ideas of making long creeds and lists of things that we believe. We kind of Say, read the Bible, that's what we believe. But there's an old um, catechism, and I really like it. It begins with a question that says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But that is what we were made. Every single one of us, every single thing in creation. And so my second point is like the first. It is again, glory to God alone. Notice that what our text says in Ezekiel chapter 36 Verse, 20, um, verse 22 says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for what? But for my name, the name of God. This is holy, that he is holy, that he is glory. And this might make us balk a little bit because we've heard things, things that are, are silly, um, things that aren't true, things that, that don't really tie into what the gospel is actually talking about. In fact, I, I think of one thing that I heard growing up, that, that God loves you so much that if you were the only person ever to come to him, he'd still come and die for you, which doesn't make any sense biblically. I mean, that just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, 
It probably doesn't help that we call ourselves things that the Bible doesn't very often call us. We call ourselves the bride of Christ. It's a very interesting thing that we call ourselves. Uh, and, and I have a slight problem with that. And that is, um, I, I get it because it makes sense that we want to be the center of God's attention. Laura wants to be the center of my attention, and she always is. Look at that face. Always is, right? And when we place ourselves in that spot, we make us the center of God's attention. What's interesting, though, is the way that Jesus talks about the bride of Christ. Because he does. And Matthew chapter 22, and Luke chapter 14, and Matthew chapter 25, and a few other places. John, John actually mentions, mentions it in John chapter 1. Uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And in this, and I'll retell this parable real quick, because he tells this parable, and he uses weddings as sort of like the trope of it, like the, 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 the structure of it. And he has different points each time, each time he uses the wedding motif, um, but he always uses it sort of the same characters are the same. And so he tells the story. He says there's a master, and this master, this king, he's got a son, and the son is about to get married. And so he sends his servants to go and gather his nobility, his royalty. He says, hey, my son's getting married. You ought to come. You need to come and be a part of this banquet. Come and feast with us and celebrate because my son is getting married. And they say, we're busy. We've got hogs to slaughter um, and we've got uh, things to do, and they, 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 take, um, they, they even take some of the servants, and they, they kill them and throw them, you know, throw them in the ditch. And so the king musters his army, and he sends them, and he, and he slays those, those rebellious noblemen. But he's still got a son, and the son still needs to have, uh, he's still getting married, and so he still needs a wedding feast. And so what's he going to do? He's just destroyed all his nobility, and so what does he do? Well, he sends his servants out into the street, and he gathers up the poor, the lame, the blind, those who are drunk, those who are uh, dirty. And he brings them in and he says, Let's, we'll wash them up, you clothe them, you get them ready, and you place them at the table so that they can eat with my son. So let's do some interpreting, shall we? Who's the king in the story? God. Dr. Ken's on it. Our great theologian. <laughs> a God. We've got a son. Who's a son? Jesus, great. Who are, the ser- who are the servants? That one's a little trickier. I didn't put that up. It's probably the angels, right? right? The, angels, uh, the, probably, the angels, the prophets, things like that, people who serve God. Who are the people? Or who are the groom, the guests, I should say. Sorry, guests. Who are the guests? We are. We're the guests, right? In Matthew 25, it's not guests, um, it being invited, it, it's, it's virgins or the, the bridal party, right? And so we are the guests who are being invited to the great feast. And so then the question is, well, who is the bride? Who's the bride? The bride is missing in the story that Jesus doesn't, doesn't talk about it. We don't, we don't really get a whole lot of information about it in those stories. It's just sort of assumed. Other than this, that when he opens up in Matthew 22, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And then he begins talking about the, the parable. And I'm really excited about this. I, I think because I think there's something deeply missing in the way that we talk about what God has done and what God is going to do and what God is planning and what all of this and all of this and all of this is all about. And we, we make a mistake because we begin by thinking about us. We place ourselves in the middle. We are the center of all of this, and so it is about us, and so obviously in the story, well, we're the best part, and so we've got to be the bride, except for, no, biblically, we aren't. We're missing the forest for this one tree. 
We're missing the forest for this one tree. Now, if we think about our text from Ezekiel, what do we have here? We have all kinds of wonderful, glorious, great things, and we should proclaim, stand, and hope in them. God says things like, I will take you out of exile, and I will sprinkle you with clean water, and I will uh, remove the idols from you, and I will uh, give you a new heart, and take out that heart of stone, and fill you with my spirit, and I will give you a good land in which to dwell, and I will make abundancy, and verdancy, and greenness, and I will remove any kind of famine or lack from you. I will fill you. I will give you everything. I will give you life if we continue to read into Ezekiel chapter 27 or 37 we would see life eternal i'm giving you all of this goodness but why for the glory that it brings me because again it is always 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 about the glory that is due god and it is always calling us to see that And so I love the way that we can jump forward to Revelation chapter, and I'll jump there and you can write it down if you aren't that speedy with your fingers. Um, Revelation chapter 21, we have this image, this great wrapping up of the great gospel story of all that God is doing. And we have this imagery. What's it all coming down to? What's the thing we've all been waiting to see? Here it is, the climactic moment, the moment of transformation and change. Here it is, the pinnacle of all of it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away in the sea Um, representing chaos and destruction. This is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And jumping down to verse 9 of that same chapter, Revelation 29, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven uh, last plagues, and it spoke to me, or he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city of the new Jerusalem. And so when we when we ask the question, well, who is the bride? What's this what's this all been about? What's what's it? Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Right? That's what we started with the question. Why did God become man? He came to rescue, certainly. He came to save, certainly. He came to sprinkle you clean, certainly. He came to transform your life, certainly. He came to give you eternal life, certainly. He came to do all of that, but he came to do that so that he could place you in a place where his glory reigns, and that is the kingdom of God. Right? It is all about Christ receiving the kingdom. It is all about the king receiving his kingdom. It is all about God. It is all about his glory, and we see this. I... Um, Rarely like going to weddings, and um, I was at uh, I was at my 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 one of my closest friends' weddings. I, I got to be his best man. I I, hate stand, I don't like going to weddings, so I really don't like standing in weddings because then you're just like standing there looking stupid. Like there's just there's nothing good that can come when you're standing here watching people. It's just. But I was really excited about this one. This one was different. Adam and I went to college together. We roomed together. Uh, he's a stinky kid. I mean, I've like, we've, we've gone through the whole, it was a mean thing to say. We, like, we, have you ever been in a college dorm room? Like, those places are awful. Like, they're, they're like, it was like this little room of nastiness. Um, and we just, we endured it together, you know? And, 
And I just, we're so, we're so close and so tight. And so he called and said, hey, listen, man, uh, you know, I, I'm getting married and I want you to be in the wedding. I was like, yes, awesome. That's fantastic. I cannot wait. And if you've ever been to a wedding and people actually like going to weddings, you, you're, they're excited and they're, they're throwing things and they're catching things and they're applauding for things and blowing bubbles and all of this stuff. There's all this joy. You can see it. It's rough to even use this metaphor for me. But there's all this joy wrapped up in this moment where we get to watch two people commit to lifelong life together. It's such a wonderful thing, and everyone's excited about it. And this is the metaphor that's used to describe you and me. That we are the people who have been invited to the table of the living God to, to, to sit at the supper of Abraham, to see the king come into his kingdom. And we are the people who get to stand at the sidelines and cheer and shout and rejoice because the bride has received the bridegroom, because the king has received his kingdom, because it is always, always, always about the glory of God, and that is the heart of the gospel, and that's the heart that we miss. And if we miss it, we lose everything. We become inwardly focused. We become focused on ourselves. We become trite and, and, and selfish, and we turn God into like some kind of genie. God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need this. Rather than looking at what the text says, and that says, tremble, earth. Ascribe to him glory. Give him praise and honor and, 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 and sacrifice your life on the altar so that he can have all of the glory because it is always, always, always about the glory of God. And if we miss that, we miss that in the way we tell the gospel so many times. And my, my, our journey, I hope you've seen it, our journey through these past, this Advent season is to see Christ the conqueror, Christ the ruler, Christ the commander, and today, Christ the King. And that you would be full of joy because the bridegroom will receive his bride. So my third point is like it. Sola Deo Gloria. The glory that is due God to, glory, to God be glory alone. If we look at our text again in Ezekiel chapter um, 36, you notice what he says here. And it, it's, in, it's indicting. Um, felt some deep conviction when Matt was sharing that passage, man. A, a moment of reflection there. He says, uh, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. What do the nations say about us? Now, they can disagree with us. They can call us uh, people who, you know, I don't know. They can call us names, and they can disagree with our points. But do they see us as a holy people? Is, is our life to them bizarre? Because everything we say and everything we do at its heart is asking the question of, is God receiving glory in this action? Is God receiving glory in this word? Is God receiving glory in this work? Because we should look bizarre to people because we're committed totally, thoroughly, 100% to the glory of God. And so the question that I have for you this morning as we, as we get to this point in the text is, have we profaned his name? Because the answer is what? Yeah. Yeah. But what's he going to do? He's going to vindicate, he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. How is he going to vindicate the holiness of his great name? Because he's going to change you. He's going to transform you. 
He's going to change your heart, which was a heart of rebellion, which was a heart that hated him and hated his rule and hated his law, that wanted to go its own way. He's going to change your heart, and he's going to put a new heart in you, a heart that beats for his glory, that beats by his love, that beats because you have a new spirit within you. The word spirit there means literally like a life force. You are literally being filled with the energy of God. He fills you with his spirit. He gives you abundance and life, and all of this transformation is happening. All of these great things are happening, and all of it points back to God. Our lives should point back to God, and I, I hope that as we as I've been proclaiming this and preaching this, you don't feel like you're losing something by moving you from the center tree to the side. I hope that you are excited because I'm really excited. When I think of what God is all about, this is what I think. This is, what's, this is what it's all about. And we miss, we miss it so much. But we, 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 we have a chance, I think, at Christmas time especially, to think about the prophets and to reform our thinking so that we can put God back in the center. And all of this then is about God receiving his glory, receiving his kingdom, and you are a part of the, the, the wedding. You're a part of the bridal party. You're, you're a part, you're the friend, you're the best friend that's been invited in, and you get to cheer and sing and dance and feast, and you get to be a part of it. All of this though, directs us where? Back to God. Back to his glory. Back to his will. Back to his power. Back to everything that is due his name. And so if we could apply this, I would make three simple applications as Paul comes up to do his thing. That was my segue. It was nice, wasn't it? <laughs> three things. The first thing is that it makes sense. If we think of everything as being about the glory of God, that makes sense. Because God, God says two commandments. The first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is like it, you shall have no idols, right? And so if the center of everything is not the glory of God, but is rather you or me, then what happens? We have become a new idol. God's obsession must be God's glory alone. Our obsession must be God's glory alone because it is always, always, always about the glory of God. And to me, this is fantastic news because I think my second, second application is this, that it makes all of this good news so much bigger than anything ever has been. So much bigger than just you receiving salvation, so much bigger than you going to heaven when you die, so much bigger than what God can do for you in your life right now. You are a part of a line that stretches back to Adam, of God moving and shaping and working his will through people so that the gospel could be proclaimed, so that Jesus could come, so that salvation could be poured out on the universe and so that all things could be restored and changed. You are a part of that massive cosmic good news. So rejoice, people. Rejoice. That's amazing news. The third thing I would say is to think again about the dominant language for Christians, for y'all. What's the dominant language in the New Testament? Two things, the body of Christ, meaning that we are literally attached to Christ in some living and meaningful way. And the second thing is family. We call each other sometimes brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 8, 
a text that I have there. Grab my sheet because I think I've written it down here. Uh, Romans chapter 8, it says, And if children, that's you and me, we are heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then we're fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Heirs with Christ. It means if Christ is inheriting the kingdom, what are you inheriting? The kingdom as well. That what we read here in Ezekiel, so much of it is yet to come. But we will dwell in the land. And God will be our God. And he will deliver us from all uncleanness. And he will summon the grain. And he will make abundance. There will be no famine. He will summon fruit and the increase of the field. And we will never again suffer disgrace. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? Something to be rejoicing about. So as we end this and as you enter into your Christmas week, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the glory of God seen in that manger. To think about the glory of God in your life. To think about the glory of God in the church. To see the glory of God in the strangest things like birds and trees and bees and animals. To see the glory of God in everything. To see how God has worked his will in the world and to rejoice and praise him for it. If this morning there is any brokenness in you, we invite you to come to the healer of all. If you need to make a confession of faith, if you need prayer, if you need to be baptized, if you need to place your memory, if you need anything, we're going to have an elder down front praying, uh, here to pray with you. I'll be down front. If we can do something for you, let's make this week a new start as we begin to think about the glory of the living God. Would you stand as we sing?